Welcome to Valley Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message, and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of uh, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasures uh, put in the treasure house of his God. So the story begins with the king of uh, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, conquering Judah very quickly in 605 B.C. Judah is a southern area. It's, it's the area that we consider Jerusalem and kind of below. So in, in your own mind, as you ever see maps and see Jerusalem, it's kind of that lower area of Israel, uh, of the the modern state of Israel, Judah was that southern part, all the way to the coast, all the way to the Dead Sea. And this is, this is happening at the same time as, as Nebuchadnezzar is really inheriting his throne. His father, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm going to slaughter these names all the way through the book of Daniel, so just get used to it. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar, uh, you know, we're four years before this in 609 B.C., and Nebuchadnezzar is, a, is attacking the Assyrians way up north. In fact, I, I kind of have a map here a little bit, uh, and I'll explain some of the numbers here. But way up in the north next to Hamath, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is attacking uh, the Assyrians. And, the, and Egypt is also, it's almost like the U, United Nations. You know nations you know, like the Warsaw Pact and all these nations kind of gather together and say, well, if you, you mess with my buddy, I'm going to mess with you. You know, that kind of attitude. So Israel had done this. Israel had attached himself to Egypt, which is kind of ironic since they were in captivity in Egypt for how many years? 400 years. So they attached themselves to them to fight off the Assyrians. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, to, to, well, actually with the Assyrians at this point, to fight off uh, Nebuchadnezzar and, and the Babylonians. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is attacking from several different fronts and actually wins. And uh, he sent his son, Nebuchadnezzar, as his commander to Hamath, and this is where Abraham's father would have would have t- taken him in, in Genesis 12. And this is where Abraham came. You know, he came this route. Uh, actually, you'll see the the very top uh, kind of uh, whitish line where it has the one next to it, and kind of goes around there. You'll see that that would be the path that they would take because if you go straight across, it's desert. So the first line, the one with number one, is is that's the path that Abraham would have taken. It's the same path as, as Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar took their armies because they would go by water. Now the second path, number two, is is right at this time is is uh, Nebuchadnezzar to go back to to win his throne, you know, to be crowned king. He took off across the desert with a fall, uh, with a small contingency, and and the the other path would have been where Daniel and all of them would have went back. Now I'm getting way ahead of myself in my notes, but I just want to kind of give you an idea of what we're dealing with here. So Egypt is way down south, but it's really controlling the northern area and it comes you know right here it comes to an end as our story begins so you come down to judah and all the armies are are, you know of judah are part of the you know as we talked about the egyptian the assyrian military alliance so you know now nebuchadnezzar king of babylon you know not quite king yet 
He's still commander. He, he defeats the Egyptians at Carchemish up in the north. And the Egyptians kind of limp home. And as they're limping home, you know, the army's kind of chasing them a little bit. But, you know, they've already kind of won. And they come right across Judah. And Judah now has no military alliance. It's been decimated. And they're just ripe for picking, like grapes. You go along and you see, I mean, it's just ripe. And you're sitting there going, oh, that's nice and juicy. That, that is good fruit. And that's how Judah looks at this point. And if you've studied the book of Jeremiah, you will find that, that this is all prophesied about in amazing detail. In fact, in Jeremiah 46, 13, it says, This is the message the Lord spoke to Jeremiah, the prophet, about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to attack Egypt. And this is all about Nebuchadnezzar coming and conquering Egypt at Carchemish. And this is even before Nebuchadnezzar becomes king. Jeremiah is saying that that he will be king and he will conquer Egypt. This would be like us saying, you know, me standing up here saying, okay, President Barbara Boxer is going to attack Iran and win. All you guys would be like, what? I would be doing the same thing. Now, I'm completely joking. But Jeremiah was not. Jeremiah was prophesying the future here. So Egypt limps home and abandons their territory, including Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar is still in this region. In the process of being crowned Egypt, you know, because his father, Nebuchadnezzar, has died. But before he goes back home and claims the throne and goes and literally kills his brothers, because that's what you do back then. If you're going to be king, you, you knock off all the other competition. So he's got to get home quickly. He comes to Judah and lays siege to it. And Judah opens their doors and says, come on in. We're not going to fight you. You'll kill us anyway. So just come on in. Okay, well, there's a new sheriff in town. So they take the plunder. And they also take articles from the temple. And we'll talk about that because they're going to show back up later in chapter 5 and, you know, form a golden goblet used at a, at a really a, a drunken party. And, you know, the hand of God writes on the wall. And we're going to talk all about that. But if you want to do further study on this, and I know all of you are doing this, there are some other books of the Bible that refer to this. You can read 2 Kings 23, 2 Chronicles 35, the book of Isaiah. Now that's a quick read, okay? The book of Jeremiah, the book of Ezekiel and Habakkuk. They're all written around the same time and, and we'll reference some of these historical events. Some of the stuff we'll talk about, some of the stuff we won't talk about because you don't want to be here all afternoon. But it's really good information if you want to study further. Well, back to Daniel. In verse 3, the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So their style of conquering a nation, basically what happens is Nebuchadnezzar wants to draft Jewish nobility. And he wants them to, to you know, bring them from Jerusalem to Babylon. And it's a long journey which follows that route of the Euphrates. It goes up north to avoid the desert. And these young guys who used to be Babylon's enemies, are along for the ride. 
Nebuchadnezzar is trying something very unique here. And, and I don't see many other nations trying this back then. Now we see it all the time. But Nebuchadnezzar is, you know, what he's doing, he's not killing them. Instead, he's drafting them into service to help govern the people. He wants to teach them and then send them back to govern. Now, this is the opposite of what we talked about as the Assyrians. What did the Assyrians do? Well, they stacked the skulls up out in front of the city. These guys said, no, we don't want to do that. We don't want to kill off the nobility. We don't want to kill off those that that are really smart. We want to draft them. We want to teach them. The Assyrians drug them off in chains with a hook through their mouth. The Babylonians, they loaded them up on their camels. I know, any excuse to bring out my camel pictures. But literally, I mean, these guys were treated like royalty. They took a long journey. They didn't have to walk with hooks in their mouth along the way. This is totally the opposite. Now, America is trying to do this right now in Iraq. What did we do? We go in there and conquer the king. Okay? Then what do you do? You teach them your way of government. Now, I'm not saying it's going to work or not work, and I'm not proposing that we should have, you know, none of that stuff. I don't want to get in the political side of it, but I'm just saying this is still done even today. Some nations go in, and it's called nation building in a sense. Let's teach them our ways because we think our ways are the best, so therefore they can turn around and do their country the same way. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to win them over by teaching, so they were governed the way he wants them to. Now, I'm not saying it'll, if it'll work or not, because I do know that for Nebuchadnezzar, it doesn't work. Now, that could have something to do with God, and he's preserving Israel. But, uh, you know, my point is, it's not hard to imagine one nation doing this to another. So, so here's what happened. Ashpenaz sets up basically testing in Jerusalem. You know, you know... He's like doing this advertisement blitz, this this flattering, you know, kind of head-spinning opportunity for young nobles. Come join us. Come come do the testing. You know, you're with the right bloodline and and your quick mind for, for learning. You could go a free trip to Babylon. We'll even put you on a camel. You know, all the bells and whistles in a sense. It says here, the royal family and the nobility. Young men, and we're talking 14 to 15 years of age. All, you know, and by age 19, all their education would be done without any physical defect. Handsome, so I'm sure I would have made the list. Good looking, you know, for, good looking for Jews is very different from good looking for, for Babylonians. Jews would be like, him? <laughs> you mean, you're calling him good looking? Give me a break. That's not our idea of that. And we have a picture of these guys in, in forms of reliefs or stellas, if you, you know, however you want to call them. They're, they're like, you know, rock art in a sense. And the Babylonians would have all these beards, and, and you'll see they're all curled down and, and flowing hair like a lot of hair. And, you know, they were really concerned about their hair for some reason. They would spend time every day getting up, you know, getting ready. And, and the wives would be like, Honey, we're going to be late. Will you hurry up? We're going to be late to the chariot races. You know, they're always going in every relief you see during this time. You'll, you'll, and I was looking for one specifically, and I couldn't find it. But, but uh, you know, they're always without their shirts. They're really, you know, into exercise, really buff guys. And, you know, this is the opposite of the Egyptians, who were very clean-shaven. 
The Egyptians couldn't stand, I don't know if it would just happen in, in Egypt, but the Egyptians started the whole idea of you know, shaving their heads and shaving almost all their body because of lice. It was very healthy to do that. So they, that's how they did things. You know, they would shave all, everything and they would like oil their bodies up to be all shiny. It was the opposite. And this is probably why the Babylonians won against the Egyptians, you know. The Egyptians are all clean and here comes the Babylonians. They're like, ooh, I don't want to fight them. <laughs> so you have the, the Babylonians all handsome and Conan-like and, you know, all ripped. And So you would know what Daniel... And these boys would look like they would spend time in the weight room and then go grab the curling iron. <laughs> Sorry. I, I'm sitting, when I'm writing this, I'm sitting here laughing, so at least I laugh at myself. But it says here that showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So the winners would be taken to live in Babylon and live in luxury for three years. And they would learn literature and culture and language and politics and everything else that you could imagine. So a 14-year-old you know, young man leave for, for Babylon, and literally they never will come back, never to see their family again. They'll have their masters and doctorates from the, you know, the University of, of Babylon. And they thought that they would be back. Because that's what the whole idea was. But they never came back. Ashpenaz is a head eunuch under Nebuchadnezzar. Now, a eunuch, not to go in graphic detail, is a man who's been emasculated. And this would have been very common practice because a eunuch could not pose any threat to the king. One, he doesn't grow up and he doesn't become the big muscly guy like the rest of them. But two, he can't you know, deal with the harem. He can't deal with the, with the ladies. Now, I could not find a picture I wanted to show you, like I said earlier, but I'll continue to look for it. But it's a relief or a stella of, of king bowing down before Nebuchadnezzar. And you can see all the court officials and all that. And then you see, you know, all these guys bearded and all that. And then next to King Nebuchadnezzar, what do you see? All these guys without beards. Those are the eunuchs. Because you don't grow your facial hair and all that if that happens at a young age. So we know that this, this kind of stuff happened. We also have reason to believe that these boys had to face something very difficult. When they arrived, they had to have some surgery to become eunuchs. Not something they would have wanted to have done. Not something they certainly were asked about whatsoever. Well, how do we know this? Well, based on the history of the Babylonian kings, one... Secondly, their, their boss was a eunuch, and you don't necessarily, you, you know, you, your boss isn't going to go through that and not make you go through that. And thirdly, based on what Isaiah predicted 85 years ahead of time, in Isaiah 39.5, Isaiah, you know, is long gone. He's been martyred by, by Manassas in 690 B.C. So 85 years ago, he says in Isaiah 39, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will come, or the time will surely come when everything, uh, everything in your palace and all of your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, will be, who will be born uh, to you, will be taken away and will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Pretty self-explanatory. I never thought of it like that before. I never thought about Daniel and being a eunuch because that's not how, you know, you don't teach that stuff in, you know, children's ministry, understandably. 
Well, back to Daniel, it says that to serve in the king's palace, he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonian. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, you go back and study history, and today's a little bit of a history lesson along with the scripture because I think it's important for us to understand this. Nebuchadnezzar was a Chaldean, and this is a tribe that is now in power in Babylon. He would have spoken Aramaic. So while the traditional language of the Babylonians would have been Akkadian, which leans kind of heavy on the Samaria language. So these boys would have learned two different languages and cultures because you certainly don't speak Hebrew if you're serving the king in the palace, right? You speak the king's language. And then you have all the other people around that are speaking a third language, so what do you do? You learn that language also. Now, Chaldeans believe in a lot of gods where the Hebrews believed in one god. And they would have many stories about these gods who, who were very unpredictable. Basically, you tried to appease these gods. Now, we don't believe in these gods. I want to be perfectly clear on this. We believe in the one true God. And that's it, the one and only God. But they believed in multiple gods. And basically, they, they just tried to appease them. Because if I can appease them, maybe they won't get upset. Because they didn't know what made them mad and, and what didn't make them mad. Ironically, you know, it's very ironic that we praise a God, we worship a God that clearly tells us what gets him upset. Sin versus holiness. So you see the difference right there. But they tried to appease him. One of them was Anu and another was Ishtar. And you'll hear the name Ishtar a lot. Ishtar is the goddess of love and war. Uh, she was a real drama queen, okay? You know the saying, "All, all is love." I mean, all in. Let me start this over. All is fair in love and war. That goes back to the Babylonians and Ishtar. See, you, you learn something new every Sunday. Now, there's another god that they they believe in here, Murdoch or, or Mar- Marduk, and it's Nebuchadnezzar's favorite god, and he is the one that that conquered the ocean uh, chaos to create the world. Is what they're teaching them at this point. You know, and it's kind of weird, out of the dead body of another female god who was killed in battle. So this is, you know, the whole, it goes back to, and this isn't necessarily Mother Earth here, but you can see how how the, the whole Mother Earth concept changes through different religions. All these gods created everything is what they believed. And they also believed in a demonic side. The demonic gods were also in play. And they could come and actually get you. This is what they were teaching them. So the reason why I'm telling you this is because Daniel and these other guys are learning all of this kind of stuff. Not that I want to teach this kind of stuff, but I want you to give a, understand a perspective of what they're hearing. And what they would do is, if you didn't bury them correctly, your ancestors, or you didn't come and offer them enough food, even though they're in the ground and can't eat the food, if you didn't do those two things, they would get you know, together uh, with uh, the demons and be able to come and get you. They would team, team it up and, and to be able to haunt you. So they would wear these little amulets. And they believed that these amulets had power to protect you. And they would bury these amulets, you know, around different places of the house or put them on the mantle uh, to, you know, as a kind of a protection or, or, you know, or face them a certain way, et cetera, et cetera. And we even see this in modern day Christianity when people have certain necklaces or, or good luck charms. In fact, when we were in Israel, this is just, you want to get me going. Oh, this just irritated the, I'll get, ah. We were in, um, the Catholic tradition has this, uh, this particular place as uh, where Jesus uh, was, was put on the cross and then buried very uh, 
very close to where this was. Uh, the, the Pisc- uh, not the Episcopalian, but the, the other tradition is a garden tomb a little further away. Um, but this is the rock that they say that his cross was, was brought up on, Christ's cross. So what they, I mean, people are literally going in there and rubbing things on this rock. Well, if I rub that on this, page, oh, I'm going to take this home. This is holy now. This will protect me. So we even see this today. I mean, when I saw that, I was just like so frustrated. I couldn't believe it. You wanted to scream at people, but then I didn't want to get into an Israeli jail, so I just left it alone. (laughs) But it made you want to. And if you kind of have one of these things, or if you kind of, you know, feel like, oh, this special thing has power, I really, I want to encourage you to evaluate that. Because what you're doing is being just like a Babylonian, a Babylonian um, at this point, if you're doing that. All right, now one of the things these gods would do, would, would, uh, do for you, or would actually would not do for you, is they would not tell you the future. So for the Chaldeans, or the Chaldeans, they believed in omens. God would give you an omen which were symbolic, but you were kind of in the dark most of the time. So to be a Chaldean, you would learn to divinate, or you know, uh, you know, learn how to decipher omens. Think of, uh, no, I'll leave that alone. But you know, a lot of men uh, in Babylon, uh, you know, to evaluate the future, uh, what they would do is they would take sheep livers. They would slaughter sheep in front of you, take out the liver, and look at the liver and say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, you need to... It's a no. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, no, no, no. It's a definite yes. You need to buy right now. You know, it was just kind of this... You would look at the liver and kind of determine... They, they were taught these things. They were taught, you know, to, to, to look at the flight of birds or oil pull, pull, poured into water, and if it went a certain way, you could determine certain things. They were taught astrology. Last night, my wife and I were outside looking up at the stars. It was really bright, and, you know, it kind of made me think. I I made the comment, I wonder if Daniel, I mean, did they take him outside and look up at the stars all the time? You know, how did they teach him this stuff? All modern-day astrology points back to the Babylonians. You know, we're actually going to talk a little bit more about this, about interpreting this when we come to what we call the wise men, in Christ's birth story. And we're going to talk about that this Christmas. But mo- all modern-day astrology dates back to this, including the 12 signs of the zodiac, 360 degrees, 60 minutes in an hour. That all points back to this point. So these guys were incredibly intelligent and very deep into superstition at the same time. So in the ancient world, to, to say he is a Chaldean could mean, oh, he, he's a professor, he has his Ph.D., or he is a diviner, or an astrologer, or a magician, or an interpreter of dreams. So if you were a businessman, and you needed a Chaldean, he would bring in a sheep, he would slaughter it, he would take out his liver, and like I said earlier, he would say, I think it's time to buy, or I think it's time to sell. He would interpret that at this point. Now the reason why we talked about this is that our four Hebrew boys would have been trained in all of these arts. That is what it means to learn the language and the literature of the Babylonians or Chaldeans. The magic oracles who interpreted the dreams. And we know that Daniel becomes an expert at this because of God's divine power. The way they were training them is if a person was having trouble when it came to their dreams, they came in and they literally would drug them up. 
And as they drug them up, they would sleep and they would keep watch over them, uh, you know, just to make sure nothing went wrong. But then you would wake up and they would tell you the dreams and then you would interpret their dreams. This is how they did it. So these are the areas that the four Hebrew boys became experts in. It's really weird to become something of an expert in something that you completely do not believe in. This is what they were facing. This is amazing to me. Taking these Hebrew boys who already had gone through their bar mitzvah, already reached that age where they were, were men in the Jewish eyes, where they made their own decisions, where they were disciplined for the decisions that they were made by the community. They know the truth, and it's like putting them in Hogwarts for three years. For you guys that have read that, so you understand. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were entered into the king's service. Now this would have been you know, kind of a prestigious thing for the parents, at least in the eyes of the Babylonian leaders, and probably in many of the Jewish, uh, Jewish parents' homes. My kid's going off to Babylon. My kid's going to be educated. Um, you know, here the Egyptian leaders uh, treated you like slaves and treated us like slaves, and the Babylonians are drafting our kids to educate them. You know, there's probably some bragging rights in a sense. You know, some of them are probably very torn in their feelings. The Babylonians would have taken a lot of young men. These four were probably the only four who made it to this level and actually came out the other side as men of God. You know, I'd almost extrapolate that the others just kind of went along for the ride. Well, this is what i got to do. This is what life has given me. Well, this is what they... I mean, what else am I going to do? Look what they've done to me already. Here's a Babylonian saying, leave your old dusty Bible behind. You're not going to need it. Leave your, your parents behind. You're gonna, we're going to be able to take care of you. Leave your temple behind. We've got plenty of different temples. We can find one that fits, you know, it's the right fit just for you. We're going to give you a new king, a new government, a new philosophy, a new religion, a new way of thinking that is much more modern. Your parents won't even understand you, so don't even try to explain it to them. We have everything you need, from bed to food to everything else. Join us in Babylon on the day off, and we can take a field trip. You know, all the students, you can come along to the ruins of, of this wonderful place outside the city. It's called Babel. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's, oh, they're ancient ruins. We'll tell you our side of the story. We'll show you the true place. And next to it, we'll show you the 65 ziggurat, 65-story ziggurat that, that you know, King Nebuchadnezzar built in honor of Babel. You're going to love it. You can imagine all the different things that are being told to them. Now, of course, what I just said is not exactly, I mean, it's not written down like that, but you could imagine. Verse 6. Among these were some uh, from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And Azariah, Abednego. Look at, you know, let's take a look at these names. These are some really cool Hebrew names. Versus the Babylonian names, which are really evil names. But when I grew up in Sunday school, we were taught the Babylonian names. 
How come I know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just like that? My wife goes, what were the other names when we were talking about last night? And I go, well, I know there's Hananiah. Um, You know, did my Sunday school teachers do it wrong? I mean, we were just taught. Did they have it backwards? The names mean, you know, L means God and Dan. So, you know, kind of do the backwards thing. Dan means judge. So Daniel means God is my judge. Yah means Yahweh. And Hanani means gracious. So Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. El means God, and Misha, Misha is a question of who compares or who is like. So Mishael means who, uh, who is what God is, or who is compared to my God. Ah is Yahweh, and Azza means, uh, means help. So Azariah, or Azariah, means Yahweh is my help. These are the names that we should be teaching our children in children's ministry. These are awesome Hebrew names. These boys have been born in a time when Josiah was king over Israel. He was a good king. So everybody was, you know, Judah was kind of going through a revival at this point. So everybody's like, let me name my kid good biblical name. And the Babylonians struggled to pronounce these names. Just like Americans would have trouble, you know, pronouncing Middle Eastern names. We kind of go, okay, what was that again? And we're trying to think it through. Okay, I say it like this. We have to think about it. So what are the Babylonians going to do? They're going to give them good old American name. Well, in this case, a Babylonian name. Even if they don't like it, they're going to get this name. Now, they would also change it because of the reference of the Hebrew God. You don't want to have, you know, this God that you don't believe in, you know, those names floating around in the king's palace. <laughs> Give me a break. So they changed them. Now this, you know, when Lisa and I were in um, Africa one time, we met a lot of Davids and Moseses and Peters all sorts of great biblical names because, you know, they're Christian. They're, they're, their Christian tradition was if you became a tradition, you changed your name to a Bible name. So you had all these different names. And, and then we have this one guy that's a Christian. His name was Geronimo, which totally confuses us because he didn't look Indian. For the Babylonians, the Hebrew God was weak and dumb. Why keep those names? So Daniel means God is my judge, gets Belteshazzar, which means Bel protect him, or the god Bel protect him. Hananiah becomes Shadrach, which means inspired by the god Aku. Mishael becomes Meshach, meaning belonging to the god Aku. And Azariah becomes Abednego, which means servant of Nebu. Now the names reflect the new expectation on these young men to leave their old God behind. And this is the same pressure I think our young people face today. When we leave our homes, even sometimes for a short time. Now, this doesn't mean we lock them up. You can't do that because kids grow up. That's what kids do. But we need to prepare them for this. The pressure will be, leave your parents' God behind because that is your parents' belief. That's why it's so important for us to teach 
our young ones. Now in verse 5 it said, The king assigned them daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And in verse 8 it says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the officials told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king. I like you, man, but the king, I'm afraid of him. Who has assigned your food and drink. He personally picked your food and drink now. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? If you don't do this, you're not going to get your nutrition that that we believe you ought to have. The king would then have my head because of you. So he's telling you, telling Daniel, man, I like you, you, I like you guys, but the king picked your food and, and I'm, I'm in this palace to get ahead, not to, you know, not to lose my head. This guy likes Daniel and Daniel's very diplomatic about it. Now, when you read verse 11, what do you see? Verse 11 says, Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You see the Hebrew names. What happened to their Babylonian names? What is this telling us? I think there's some little bit of passive-aggressive rebellion going on here in their hearts. The good type of passive-aggressive rebellion, usually that's a very negative thing, but I think this is a very positive thing at this point. They're still calling themselves, uh, you know, themselves by their Hebrew names in private. Why are they doing that? I believe they're holding on to God because we know the rest of the story. We see this. They're holding on to God. They're holding on to mom and dad and their family. They will never see their parents again. But their mom and dad have done a good enough job that they're holding on to this. And God has, you know, done an amazing job on them, on them and with them. Verse 12, it says, please, te- uh, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. This doesn't sound like any teenager I know. I just want my veggies. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Daniel is so smart here. He's giving his boss an out. Hey, you know what? You're, you're probably right. And have you ever, in a sense, manipulated your boss this way? You know, with my father and, and, and around our house, we had to make it sound like it was my dad's idea and he would go with it. But if it wasn't his idea, it's the same way. This is what Daniel's doing here. You know, he's, he's kind of, you know, doing that little manipulation here. You're, you're probably right. We're just, cra- you know, we're just teenagers craving our vegetables. You know, water, you know, just water. That's all we want to drink. You're in charge. Just give us 10 days. Verse 14, it says, So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better n- nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice of food, or their choice food, and the wine they were to drink, and gave them vegetable set, uh, vegetables instead. Now, when you're thinking vegetables, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but I want to go back to another verse here. It says that Daniel reserved, uh, resolved not to defile himself. Another t- translation says he purposed in his heart. And that is what really is going on here. He is putting his foot down for a reason. 
And he's waited for the right moment to do this. This is like he, he is saying, you can take me from all that I'm familiar with. You can take me from my mom and dad. You can take me from my temple. You can take me from my scrolls of learning. You can take me from my training. You can make me take these crazy little classes involving sheep livers and stars and comas. And, you know, and I'll even graduate from the head of my class. You can take my physical manhood, the ability to to be a parent. You can give me a Babylonian name, but you cannot purposely take away my God who commanded me as a Jew to keep kosher. And this is where I draw the line. But he draws the line in such a diplomatic way that it works. Daniel is, is telling us, There's sometimes a way of doing things and a way of saying things that people, you know, walk away going, okay, that makes sense. You know, in a sense, you give them a way to save face. What he's saying here is, you know, as nutritious as your meal is, for us, it's not cooked properly. It's cooked in milk and and cream. You know, it's not bled properly from the begin, you know, from the very beginning. And you serve it with cheese, which makes us Jews just go, oh. You know, when we were in Israel, one place, a dining hall, and it was split. One side had ice cream, and there was a line down the middle. And you ate your food over here. And if you wanted to go get any dairy product, you had to wait until you finished, because this side was deemed kosher, and this side was not. You couldn't, you know, if you finished early and got your dessert, you, you could come stand by the line, but don't go across it, because they were watching you. You just don't do that. So you can't mess up water and vegetables. Now the word vegetables comes from the root word zara. And zara means a sown seed or scattered seed. Now when we think of, or you think of vegetables, you know, what do you think of? Green beans and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, that's all included, but it's also every planted seed. So we're talking rice wheat, all the fruits. You know, they made bread. As long as it was made without milk, it was great. All of that was included. At the end of this text, it says that their faces looked healthier. Now, you go back and you look at that word in in the Hebrew, it actually means fatter, not healthier. At the end of the ten days of water, vegetables, and fruit, why are they, in a sense, to use the word, why are they fat? It's not logical. God is making them fatter. I think God is already, you know, working miracles here. He's going to do a lot of miracles with their bodies. It's going to be an amazing journey here. So you can tell your families, this is why I'm fat. God made me fat. It's a miracle. Mom, it really is. has nothing to do with all those carbs I ate last week. No. Now, American culture, it's kind of bad to be fat. You know, we use that negative term. It's kind of bad to be having a little weight. But in many other cultures, it means you're rich or you're wealthy. So it's a, a kind of a compliment. So while in Angola, Africa, I had a guy lean over to me and kind of lean over to me and said, you know, you're looking rather fat today. <laughs> and it was a compliment. But, yeah... See, but for Daniel, it has nothing to do with that. It's all about keeping kosher. And by asking permission, he's not outright rebelling, yet he is. 
I also believe he's making a statement about the king's table. It is still true, true today in Middle Eastern culture. If you sit down at somebody's table, you're making a statement. And the statement, the statement is, I like you as a friend. I like you enough that I'm friends with you that I will come and eat at your table. And if you push back from the table and don't eat, you're saying, I am not so sure about you. And while, you know, this kind of got me thinking about trips and with Daniel kind of going to another country, it kind of got me thinking. But, you know, when we went to Angola again, we took a chef along because, you know, you can get really sick. So there's certain ways to, to prepare the food. But three times we ate cooking that was from them. Twice was with families that knew how to prepare it because they had been to America and they knew that, you know, if we drank the same water, you know, just the plain water that we would get sick. But the last day, there was a potluck at the church. Now, their pots were really a potluck. This is where they did the cooking right next to the church. Now, this wall, praise the Lord, didn't have little tubes running out of it because the rest of the walls in the neighborhood had the the tubes running out of it, and that was where they flushed the toilet, and it went outside the house. So these guys made their own charcoal, and they would bring it, and they would fix it right there. So you were lucky if the food didn't affect you. Potluck. (laughs) Yeah, you caught on. So we're sitting there looking at it going, we've been told. And our leaders come around whispering in our ear, you better eat every drop, every last thing. The whole deal is we didn't want to offend our host. It wasn't about the food, it was about the host. So one of the things that Daniel is saying is, you know, we have to eat, but not like this. Because frankly, I don't like you that much. I'm remembering, you took me from my home. You flattered me, you taught me, but they were against my religion. You also cut off some things that were near and dear to my heart. (laughs) I would have loved, I'm talking about the family, okay? (laughs) I would have loved to grow a beard. (laughs) oh i would have loved to father children and this is exactly what is going on here and they get away with it he's going like you know he's going hey azariah you you still jewish yep completely you're gonna make it yep and you are too they're backing each other up here they look across the room at their former few, you know, the, the old Jewish friends who are chowing down literally, you know, in a sense on the pork rinds. Hey guys, how's all that pork? Hey, you, you got some between your teeth there, pal. And then, you know, the guys are probably, come on, man, just lighten up, Daniel or Belteshazzar. Come on, lighten up. He's probably sitting there going, you know, I used to call you Moises, Moses, Moises. And the others, man. Just leave it alone. Now, there's something else that struck me about the word vegetables. And, you know, we talked about the root word azarwas, which means scattered seed. I think he's reminding the four of them and all the other boys, hey, we're scattered seed. Zechariah said, uh, said it like this in Zechariah 10.9, I will scatter them like seeds among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall return. And I think at every meal they ate, they were reminding themselves, where did we come from? Because they're eating kosher. Now we're out of time, but I do want to hit Psalms 126. 
when the Lord brought back captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for, the, uh, for, uh, for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. So the question is, what is Baghdad? Secondly, who is your God? Thirdly, who are you? What compromises have gotten in between who you were and who you are now? Are you stronger now in the faith? Or are you weaker now in the faith? Have you been eating, you know, at the table of Nebuchadnezzar? Just gorging yourself on everything the world has to offer? Or are you saying, hey, wait a minute. This isn't kosher. This isn't what I've been taught. You know what I find interesting? Different ones of us will push away from different things. Have you noticed that? We'll just push away from, you know, different tables. And that is the New Testament, man. You know, that's the law of grace. But if you're not pushing away from anything, you should be questioning your faith. You should be concerned about what you believe. If there's nothing in your lifestyle that sets you apart from the person who lives down the street from you, something is seriously wrong. You need to look deep within yourself and ask, what do I believe? And find God again. Because He is there waiting for you. He wants to reconnect with you. He wants to show you His ways. And He will rejoice. The nation will rejoice when you do. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful you have these this history in here about Daniel and these guys that we can learn from it. That Daniel, from so many years ago, is teaching us to push back from the table, to draw lines in our lives and say, that's not kosher, that's not right, that's not godly. I pray that you, you allow the Holy Spirit to open our eyes so we can see ungodly things in our lives. And that we not only see them, but we act upon them that we see to to turn back to you because you're there and waiting. I thank you so much for that, Lord. I thank you so much for waiting on me when so many times you could just kind of wash your hands and give up and walk away. But you're not willing to do that. You're the shepherd that goes after your sheep. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. May the Lord's Spirit just show you the path that He would have you on in this dark and weary world. May He give you joy and peace and fun in this life. The fun of serving Him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.